Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Paul, Steve, welcome back. Good to be back. And uh, we watched what I imagine is our our new favorite economics film, Elysium, uh, that came out this last summer. Elysium is... Uh, I'll, I'll backtrack. Um, so I'm, I'm ethnically nerd, and many nerds spend an inordinate amount of time nitpicking science fiction films for the technological and science fallacies that they break over and over and over again and take you know no, no end of uh, pleasure in pointing out the inconsistencies of the Death Star compactor in Star Wars and things like that. To me, Elysium is like that with economics because it's the first film I've watched that makes more sense in terms of cyborgs fighting each other in space than the actual economics which are being pushed forth in the movie. Uh, so I, That's I thought true, it was, but the science is also pretty bad. There's a <laughs> also whole, true, yeah. There's a whole <laughs> website I discovered, here's what Elysium did wrong. <laughs> of course uh, there is. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I, I suppose I should retract my statement. The the science and uh, the science and economics are equally abysmal, uh, so far as I can tell. Uh, so no I, I, roof I, I, on the space station. Yeah, yeah, right, that, yeah, I was curious about that actually. I was like, do they have like like argon or something? Is it an inert gas keeping it in? I'm not really clear what they're doing. You know, and and the thing, I mean, God, this movie was a bear to finish. I got to tell you, um, yeah. and and th- there's so many things we can point to, but it just. To, you know, we, we were talking, and we've talked at the times about sort of the change in Hollywood and all these sorts of things. My impression of this movie was it started as a more serious, thoughtful piece about the conditions that led to this sort of separation of the one percent in space and the rest, you know, in, in poverty. And then it went through draft after draft. And people kept saying it's boring. We need to blow some things up. We need to blow a guy's head up. We, need, you know, uh, let's put Matt Damon in a transformer suit. I mean, you know. And, and by this time, you've turned it into this ridiculous film that has no kind of coherence in the narrative and, and no kind of sense of how we got to where we are whatsoever. But a lot of cool stuff gets blown up and flies around. And, you know, it just it just classic putting the special effects and the action and the blood ahead of anything resembling a coherent narrative. Yeah, because uh, the guy who made it, Neil Blomkamp, yeah. did this film District Nine, which, which is I not love. great, yeah. but it's very interesting yeah. and uh, very powerful allegorically. And this yeah. film just—I was actually almost looking forward to it because I like District yeah. Nine. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I, I enjoyed District Nine as well. I thought it was really fun. I, I thought that this was a, a, a preachy sci-fi romp, uh, and I—a couple of my friends have called me out and said that I'm I'm reading too much into it oh. uh, when I when I point out the economics of the film, uh, and I said, you know, I, I don't really think I am. Like I I think that there uh, the Elysium Homeland Security could be some sort of vague reference to our own Department of Homeland Security, <laughs> uh, and I I suspect that there are other. And I believe Blomkamp, if I'm not mistaken, has gone on public record saying that this is about the developed world um, hogging all of the resources and, and you know being in this wonderful paradisical state while, while other people are suffering in the undeveloped world. No, it's uh, the most heavy-handed allegory I've ever seen. Yeah, Elysium yeah. is basically the United States, and the rest of the world is the rest of the world, and why don't we let them all in? Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, it, it's uh, and and I, I want to start off before we get into the. I, I suppose this is uh, kind of macroeconomics meets just kind of basic humanity. Um, a, a quick dystopian science fiction trope that I'd like to dispel, and I'll give Blomkamp a pass on this because it's a very frequent trope used in science fiction. So he's not alone in perpetuating this. But the idea of an incredibly overpopulated planet. Right. Uh, all of the trends we've had uh, over the last 400 years indicate that the more wealthy countries get, the less populated they get. And this, you know, there's these fears that go back to Malthus that we're going to outbreed ourselves. That you know, that we're going to the, the the healthier people are, the longer they're going to live, the more kids they're going to have, and then there's either going to be a giant war or starvation or disease, and that's the only way to stop mankind from just exponentially growing. And no, it turns out that when you when you get a really good economy going, people in Sweden go, oh, if I have two children, I can go on vacation, whereas if I have 14 children, I won't go on vacation. And to, to 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 further uh, illustrate that, I mean, when when societies go from being an underdeveloped uh, agrarian society, they have really big populations, and then once they become developed, they don't need big populations because not as much of the population is working on farms, and there are less infant mortality. So I, I point this out so that anybody listening to this that watches that film does not think we're hurtling towards an overpopulated planet. If anything, it's going to drop uh, over the next century. And so long as economic progress maintains, it'll probably drop precipitously over the next three. And, and there's a couple ironies there, too. One irony is is that much of Western Europe and Japan it, were not, is not replacing themselves, at least among the native-born. They're actually you know, reducing the absolute level of, of the native-born there. And it's immigration. And as Paul pointed out, that's one of the, you know, immigration is the thing that's preventing popula- underpopulation. The, the, problem with, and the problem with movies like this, and we saw this with WALL-E, too, is they just postulate this world of, you know, of, of sort of uh, ecological and, and, and demographic disaster and feel no com- reason to explain whatsoever how it's possible we got there in, in contradiction to the current facts because everyone knows that's where we're headed, right? And so there's no need to even try to explain it. Paul, any thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the, uh, the problem with all these futuristic films that simply extrapolate from a current trend and think that people can adjust, uh, redo their behavior, uh, rethink uh, 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 their plans. And it's obvious, I mean, there are several countries in Europe and uh, Italy, Russia is a good example. Of, yep. uh, they're facing precipitous population declines now. Yeah, uh, actually, I mean, like, like uh, Steve's right. I mean, outside of... I, I can't think of a single country in the developed world outside of very new uh, Eastern European former Soviet states like like Poland um, that actually has a population increase going on. Well, uh, the United States is yeah. buoyed by immigration. The United Kingdom's declining. Uh, most most populations are actually declining in terms of birth rate, well, which yeah, means right. that which means that we've we've hit. Uh, what, what I might call peak fecundity, right? Uh, in terms of global population, the actual global population would would probably hit its maximum in the yep. next fifty years, and then it'll keep declining after that. Again, that, assuming that we don't wreck the economy, right? And that, and just to be clear, there's like maybe five or six countries where the grow where the rate of population growth is increasing. Right. There's many countries that are still getting larger, but they're getting they're growing at a smaller rate than they used to. 
So what we're seeing, we're still seeing population growth globally, but it's slowing down, slowing down. There's only a very small handful of countries where we'd say, you know, the second derivative is positive, where they're growing at an increasing rate, and, and they'll slow down too. And as you say, by the middle of this century, we probably will hit peak, peak population. But we're certainly past the peak point of speed of growth. There's no question about that. And then another thing that, that I'd like to point out uh, is I, I think all of us are in agreement that this is a very preachy film. Uh, and I, it, at the end of the film, I'll spoil it for anybody that's not watched it. At the end of the film, Matt Damon, after a, a, a truly laudable amount of explosions, uh, is able to give control of, of Elysium, uh, which is this sort of floating Beverly Hills uh, space station, uh, he's able to give control of it to the people back on Earth, and they're able to take it over, and um, and all they have to do is push a button, and then all of these wonderful magic boxes that cure all known ailments automatically fly to Earth and start taking care of people. And I think, you know, if it were that easy, I think they would have, somebody would have done something comparable to that earlier. Uh, to withhold that would be slightly evil given how much uh, disparity there is in that world, almost like a certain director using $115 million to make a film like this as opposed to just giving it to all these poor people he cares about. Uh, so I, I think there's a certain level of personal hypocrisy on, on the, the part of the director. Oh, this is another one of those hypocritical films which is criticizing America and capitalism all the way to the bank. I noticed it has a product placement in it. There's one point where there's a Bulgari watch in yep. it clearly identify. So they're out to make as much money or get as many watches as they can uh, while preaching against capitalism. And if the residents of Elysium were really these, you know, profit-seeking, money-hungry, whatever, right, look at all the profit they're leaving on the table by not trying to bring all their technology and everything else to, to the rest of the world. Not, not to mention the fact that bringing the rest of the world in, right, brings them more labor, more opportunities for production, would in fact enrich them in the long run. So it, it just, it doesn't, you know, this is, this is again, the, 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 the heavy-handedness of the, of the allegory here is just stunning. A absolutely, I'm with you. I mean, it's, I'll, I'll postulate in, in a prior episode, Steve, you, you gave your, I, I believe, the, the Stephen Horwitz first rule of economics um, so I will, I will give my own, uh, my own rule. I'm going to call this Heaton's Episcopalian Theorem. And that is when you have more than a thousand rich people in one concentrated area, an Episcopalian church will form and then start giving charity money out. Uh, so I, I can't comprehend that there would be that many rich people living on Elysium and not some NGOs, charities, uh, uh, good organizations trying to take care of all the masses down below, whereas they seem completely, completely... Um, aloof and apathetic to the suffering of the world down below, which which I don't think is realistic. Uh, uh, a lot of wealthy people are donating money, but but in, in this film, it's you know they're uh, the, the the guy down on the earth. Uh, I, I forget the the name of the the character, but Matt Damon's microwaved, and his his line is you know get him off the sheets. I don't want to buy new sheets, and it's. Uh, there might be some calloused individuals like that. I suspect that with that many rich people, there'd also be a lot of uh, a lot of NGOs. Well, the film takes the most naive and simple-minded view of wealth. It's the classic example of the zero-sum game view of economics, that the United States is only, uh, wealthy only because other nations are poor, as if we've stolen the wealth of the rest of the world. The whole wealth of the rest of the world doesn't even add up to our wealth. 
Uh, yep. we're, we're, this film has no sense that wealth is produced by human beings, uh, that it's a matter of work, capital, ingenuity, uh, ingenuity, uh, entrepreneurship. Here it says some people have a pile of stuff and other people don't have a pile of stuff. And the people who have the pile of stuff greedily hold on to it and won't share it. It is that caveman view of economics. It's a child's view of economics. You're not sharing. That's the complaint of the film. There's no sense that people can get together, mutually contract, and improve both their situations. No, it's just, you've got it, why don't you give it to me? And what we don't see here is any kind of intermediary institutions of civil society either, like the NGOs, but really anything else for that matter. I mean, there's no, this is a very... Uh, I don't know what the word I want is, sort of uh, underdeveloped, very bland in a way view, where we think about how we deal with people who need assistance in our own world, aside from the fact that even <laughs> profit-seeking entities often give things away or hospitals you know, provide care for free. Um, but we have all these organizations, charitable organizations, religious organizations that perform that, that function, which are just completely absent in this, again, as Paul rightly said, this kind of childish or caveman view of, of economics. And if, if we if we want to use the allegories, I think it was intended of you know America versus the developed world of of the rich plutocrats versus the people living in abject poverty. Uh, the the economic transactions going on between the United States and poor countries are beneficial for them. And uh, I, I got into a a really angry discussion with somebody. I hadn't anticipated this, but it was over the concept of sweatshops. Uh, and this will sound counterintuitive to people listening, and it will sound heartless. Uh, it is not um, the idea that. Uh, Sweatshops are good, yep. uh, and I, I don't mean this to say that it would be better to work in a sweatshop than it would to be a tennis pro. That's not what I'm indicating. Uh, but you take like South Korea, for example, that had a, a dismal economy at the end of their uh, at the end of the Korean War. Uh, they had sweatshops um, that, that was going into the Western world, where the Western world would contract out shoes or whatever to to, to South Korea. Capital's coming in, skills are coming in. Uh, but but mostly just people have an ability to earn a living, uh, and they were able to kind of climb out of the hole that they had been in, and now they're uh, an economic uh, powerhouse. They're doing quite well. Uh, South Korea is uh, in a good state, um, and a, a lot of the time we're, we're given this sort of false dichotomy of, well, either there is the rich nations exploiting the poor nations, or... Um, somehow, magically, the poor nations aren't aren't poor anymore. And and I, I think the the third option, which is realistically how the world works, which is uh, if you're a poor nation, if you're an underdeveloped nation, what you probably have in abundance is cheap labor, and that's something that can be used. And that means that money's now coming in, and uh, a, a lot of the time, um, poor countries are able to climb up out of the holes that they've been in through these voluntary exchanges, through the the, the robot factory that Matt Damon is working in, uh, and. Uh, uh, so, so I, I think that you know a, a lot of what lifts up the developing world is not this exploitation, but in fact the the economic activity going on with it from the developed world. Absolutely, and what you need for that to happen is you need capital, right? Yeah. I mean, what 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 those sweatshops represent often is Western capital or Northern capital coming in with machinery and technology that combine with the 
abundant local labor, which may well be on an absolute scale low skilled, makes that labor more productive than it would be otherwise. The wages that that so-called sweatshops pay are almost always superior to the wages paid by local companies because the Western companies have better technology and the work therefore is more productive and they can pay higher wages. And they're certainly better than most people's uh, opportunity costs. Their next, you know, if your next best opportunity, your next best choice is 14 hours a day on the on the farm, that's no fun either, by the way, or prostitution or pulling bottles, you know, getting bottles off the street. Those all are awful compared to the opportunities that you have to work in in, in, the, in a factory to earn a, a decent living in usually better conditions than, you're, than the other opportunities facing. I, I, yeah, I think you're right on that. Um, uh, one, one of my friends is against um, U.S. companies having any type of any type of uh, economic act- activity with with foreign countries if they're not paying minimum wage, uh, which is to say he he does not believe that we should really ever have any jobs that go anywhere outside of America, Canada, or Europe. Uh, and I, I my point was you should really ask the workers in these other countries how they feel about that because if if we quit you know working in say uh, you know t- Taiwan or, or I, I guess. You know Singapore or Malaysia, um, all those people just become unemployed, and and in a much less robust social safety net environment, they potentially starve. They go back to the farm. So it's it's not like a, you know if if we were marching in at gunpoint, making people do things that slave labor, that's terrible. That's a, a moral atrocity that which should never happen. But if it's you know the the options are something terrible like starvation versus working at a poor rate, people generally would rather have the job, and and that's something that can actually benefit them. The, the other thing that I'll add to your, your earlier point, Steve, is that there's there's two things I think that, that need for that that uh, that relationship to work and come to fruition for the developing nation, and that's one they need capital, which is beneficial because it builds up the the industry and the resources and the the skill set of the country that it's taking place in. The other thing is that on our end, what we can do to really really help undeveloped countries is reduce tariffs, uh, yep. because. In the United States, we tend to erect tariffs um, to protect our industry, not to protect our consumers. It raises prices for consumers. It makes shoes cost more. Um, but it hurts those people in other countries. If you really want to help people in, in developing countries, reduce tariffs. Uh, and they're, it's, it's actually quite um, disbalanced right now in the United States. We, we actually have lower tariffs for France than we do for, say, tennis shoes coming out of Bangladesh. Um, if, if you want to help undeveloped countries, just make tariffs literally zero uh, for all products we buy from undeveloped countries. That would help them tremendously. Free trade. Free trade. And the other thing, the other half of that is we need to stop subsidizing uh, and giving advantage to our own producers, right? Um, right. So, for example, agricultural subsidies in the U.S. make it very difficult for farmers across the, in, the, in the third world to compete with us. And, and that's another unfair, that, that's an unfair advantage, too. One that ultimately hurts U.S. consumers as well, not to mention... Uh, uh, producers in other countries. And ironically, if you were to get rid of those agricultural subsidies, um, and that would allow, uh, say, like Mexico and a lot of Latin America, to have a a viable agricultural sector, which would also probably reduce the amount of illegal immigration happening. uh, Because you're you're artificially uh, creating an agriculture market in the United States, which attracts people, whereas you could actually build up their own economy. Um, and by the way, American consumers would win because food would be cheaper since they'd be buying it from a cheaper location. So if you're a poor person in the United States, it would be to your benefit. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so two things that I do want to point out uh, that I, I, will, I will reluctantly give credit to in the film, uh, and I, I say this with a, with a big caveat because I think the film is awful in, in virtually every capacity in terms of economics. Uh, one, I will note that in the film... Uh, uh, the, the main character is working in a robot factory. 
and he still has a job. Now, <laughs> we, we, we can point out the, the logical oddity that apparently robots can be policemen and parole officers, but they can't build other robots. All right, well, t- taking that aside for a moment, um, something that I, that I do appreciate about the film that I think it inadvertently did was that the better technology gets, it doesn't necessarily render everybody unemployed. Uh, we've, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, there's always these fears that the next wave of technology is going to put out a bunch of people from work. And that does happen temporarily, but then they recoup. Uh, 20 years ago, nobody knew what a webmaster was. I don't believe the position existed. Uh, there, were, there was no such thing as a social media coordinator 20 years ago. Uh, but, but for every new wave of technology, there's a whole new wave of people. So there's going to be people building robots. So I'll give them a minor degree of credit on there. What do you guys think? Go ahead, Paul. Well, I'll give him credit on a couple of other themes if I can go that way. I do feel uh, that what it shows about the militarization of the police uh, is a good libertarian aspect of it. Uh, That is, I think it does identify a very dangerous trend in our society. That is that the police increasingly have the same weapons uh, as the military and are willing to use them uh, against our own popularization population. The issue of drones come up uh, in the film that people, uh, the surveillance state, uh, that people can be tracked by drones. It does point to some aspects of tyranny in the world uh, that are genuine and uh, we do come back to the issue of crony capitalism. Yes. Uh, the um, uh, So I wish I could get across to the left that yeah, libertarians don't like crony capitalism either, and that you guys are objecting to something that's crony capitalism and not real capitalism. And so the sense in the film that there's this one corporation and it's in bed with the government, and the corporation is helping the government, and the government's helping the corporation. That's the legitimate beef when that happens. That isn't free market. Right. That's precisely yeah. what's wrong with the U.S. today. The privileged corporations that work hand in hand with the government. Uh, I bet William Fitchner's company got a bailout when it needed it. Right. Well, and and you can't even tell where the line is, right? I mean, yeah. they have the ability, the Elysium people have the ability to declare no fly over L.A. Are they government and uh, over what? And are they government over the land and the space station? And again, what's their relationship with Fitchner's company? I mean, it, you're right. All this, these lines are just, there is this sort of powerful you know, mysterious group who controls everything, and and that is that kind of crony capitalist world that that, that libertarians too find so problematic. Um, if we're going to give this movie credit for things, I'm going to give it another backhand credit too. It it may I may not have ever seen a recent movie that incorporated more action movie cliches from a larger number of movies <laughs> than this one did. I started making a list about halfway through, so let me just let me run my list real quick. Um, and I don't think this is complete. Die Hard, Demolition Man, Total Recall, Terminator, Matrix, Return of the Jedi, and Transformers. That's at least <laughs> scenes that were almost, you know, he, my favorite, I busted out laughing when he breaks out of that chair. It's almost the identical scene from Total Recall when Schwarzenegger busts out of it. Oh, you're right, yeah. Right? Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's just uh, all this. I mean, just, you know, every, everything's there. Uh, so yeah. we can give them credit for recycling. And, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're environmentally responsible. You, 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 using using uh, using some good content from oh, better and, films. And I actually forgot one. When when he when he basically blows off the bad guy's face, right? And they put him in the regenerator, and it grows back. I, I turned to my wife and said, "Oh, Men in Black, right? It grows back." <laughs> so you know, I mean, uh, how, 
at some point, you d- I just started laughing because he was so many cliches in one. Yeah, on, on that note, this is and this is getting away from economics to the technical end. If they can regrow the guy's face, how come they can't bring back Jodie Foster and the guy that's shot in the helicopter? Like, presumably everybody's... Ah, I, I digress. Um, I'll, I'll say the, the other element that I, I think... I, I suspect that I would agree with Neil Blomkamp on if we were to have a conversation about it is probably immigration. Uh, I, I'm not in favor of 100% porous open borders, but I am in favor of fairly big amounts of people crossing freely between borders. I mean, like, I, I, if I were designing U.S. immigration policy, I, I would have a, a border control that finds out if you're a felon or not. Uh, but... Uh, to a large extent, I, I think having workers in the United States is beneficial to them and to us, and that uh, making it very difficult to get into the United States is bad for them and for us. And uh, in the film, you do have this this um, this allegory of a rich country trying to keep out uh, people that want to freely work there, um, and of, of those people desperately trying to get in. And uh, I, I'm curious as to if you all have any thoughts on that. I, I mean, I, I would agree with more or less the way you put it, Andrew, which is, you know, that, what, what, the, what the movie, I mean, you know, as far as immigration policy goes, let them all in. I mean, essentially, if you don't have a communicable disease or you don't have a, you know, a, 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 a clear history of violence, then come on in. Right. I mean, um, and, and that it's mutually beneficial. And I think but but what's interesting about the movie, of course, is it portrays it, it, it sees it certainly from the point of view of the immigrants, the benefit they get by going to Elysium. But, but there's this sense there, too, that when they get there, they're just going to turn the tables, right? You, there, there's no real sense that, that, that Damon's crew and what the guy's name, Spider or whatever, right, that mm-hmm. this whole crew is going to turn it into some open paradise. My, my sense certainly was they're, part of it is they're out for revenge, right? And, and that's, that's not, you know, that's a different story than, than the one I would tell. Paul? Well, you know, immigration is a very complicated issue. In a free market world uh, where all countries had free markets, I would believe in unlimited immigration. Uh, But it does get complicated when you have uh, these different regimes in the world now uh, and where uh, uh, countries that don't have free markets uh, or even freer markets uh, have very bad economic conditions. And then you those people want to come to countries that have free markets and take advantage uh, of those uh, uh, economic opportunities there. But you then have the complication that you have all these welfare benefits that these people uh, can take advantage of uh, that make it, a, for example, a strain on the finances of the U.S. And moreover, as a voting block, they then tend to be pro-state uh, and anti-free market and in that sense uh, endanger the future of free markets in the United States. So there are all sorts of political ramifications uh, to the uh, uh, immigration. Yeah, I, I, I make I, it not to give an easy answer. Right. I don't believe in the world as we have it today that countries can afford to have unlimited open borders. On no, the I, other, I, yeah. other hand, I will oh. say this: if you look at uh, who's going to police the borders, it's the state. They will right. be as incompetent as doing that uh, as they are at anything else, including Veterans Administration. And yeah. so, 
the idea that somehow we can police borders, that turns it over to the state and they'll screw it up the way they screw up everything else. And There's I, a kind of rude libertarian in me that says, well, this is another problem you can expect the government to solve. They'll just somehow manage to make it worse. And they surely have done that. Right. And I would just add two quick things. I think the two <laughs> concerns Paul raised, the, the welfare state type consideration, I'm... I'm less concerned about. I think the, there's some pretty good evidence to suggest that the vast majority of immigrants are sort of net producers rather than net takers of public resources. So I'm less concerned about that. The voting issue, I think, is a little bit more complicated. Um, the only issue, you know, the counter argument to that is, is that, well, if we're, you know, if we're going to not allow people in because of how they might vote, why doesn't that apply to citizens too, right? Why, why can't we, you know, if that's the criteria for filtering people, uh, why don't we have some sort of, you know, test that when you turn 18 before you can vote to make sure you're going to vote one way or the other? Again, I'm well, being a little bit... in favor of that. <laughs> I'm sure you... I knew you were going to bite on the reductive. I knew you Property would. qualifications for voting. Yeah. See, and I'm, I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm much more, I'm, I'm much more willing to, 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 to not worry about those things. But, but again, I think whatever the difference is between Paul and I here, or any of the three of us, um, certainly we're a far cry, I think, from where we are right now. And, and Paul's last point is really important. We always have to make the realistic comparison. So when we say we, we want limits on immigration, even if they're for good reasons, we have to ask realistically how those are going to be enforced and whether that isn't worse than the problems that more open immigration would create. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And I, I suspect that, yes, if the three of us were designing a, a U.S. immigration policy, it would look remarkably different and probably more open than the current immigration policy, uh, which is, you know, intractable due to various political positions. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more with Steve than I am with Paul. I think based on the data I've read, the, the vast majority of, of undocumented workers in the United States uh, don't take benefits uh, for fear that they will be deported. Um, and because I think, to their credit, they, they actually are over here to work and get money. And, uh, and then when you go up the chain a little bit, there's uh, um, you know, quite a few people that are you know, documented immigrants that are starting, uh, um, starting companies. I think it's, it's something like half of the Fortune 500 companies that have been formed in the last few years have had uh, an immigrant, again, usually a legal immigrant in that instance, um, on the board. But I guess my overall point is that immigration is generally uh, economically beneficial uh, for our country and for other countries. Uh, particularly for the United States, as we tend to attract um, both on the on the lower economic rungs people that are very very hard working uh, that want to do jobs that Americans are less inclined to do, like fruit picking or things like that, and on the higher end we get you know doctors and programmers and things like that. So it, it, we get kind of a, a global brain drain that benefits us. Um, so uh, I will I will give I will give uh, Blomkoff uh, a. A little bit of a, a, a passing grade on the immigration issue, just because I, I suspect that we would both be more in favor of that. Um, yeah, however, on all of the other him, economics, immigration is the same as universal health care. Right. Uh, the fundamental thrust of the film is we owe it to the rest of the world yep. to give them all our resources to solve their problems. Yep. It is again that zero sum view that we're withholding something that these people deserve, and it's it's exactly the opposite. It is exactly the notion. 
that these immigrants should get these benefits from the United States. He has no idea that they should come and work hard and produce things because he doesn't see anything being produced in the economic world. The economic world is just hoarding for him. Yep. It's, it's, I, I sometimes call that the Pac-Man vision of the world. It's just yeah. you know immigrants and people are just these little consuming things that go munching around and eat stuff. They don't create anything. And that's, that's the, as Paul said, that's the real fallacy at the heart of this, which is more people, whether it's population or immigration, more people, more brains, more brawn, more production, more stuff, more cheap, <laughs> better lives. In an ideal libertarian world, there would be free movement of populations just as there'd be free movement of capital. That's what you, you want to see, that economic resources move to the places where they're most profitable and can produce the most. No question about that. But with the, our world is very complicated by politics. And I, I, I caution people, sometimes you got to factor in the political elements to an, an understanding economic problem. Well, I, I'm with you all, on, and particularly the, that idea of a zero-sum game being the, the dominant economic understanding in the film. When you, when you watch this, you know, floating Beverly Hills type environment, you, I, I looked at that and I was like, "What?" what it looked Earth? like Miami Beach to me, but maybe yeah. you're right. <laughs> I, well, I, I suppose I was kind of rooted in the Los Angeles mindset, since that's where they, they opened the film up. But yeah. I, I watched that and I was like, what, what is the economy based on right. uh, in Elysium? It seems to me they're, they're swapping. You're like, it must all be pool real estate market uh, or, or maybe like <laughs> yeah. French lessons for kids. It's nothing but pools or, and French. Right. Or, or, or this big you know, inherited wealth or something. That, and, and where is it going and why aren't they spending it down? And where are their, where are their resources coming from? Right. I mean, these are all, what are, you know, exactly what... what well, I, I, yeah, I think we've, we've, we've uh, hit the crux of the matter, which is that wealth is not something that's divided. It's something that's multiplied. And uh, that, that tends to be a deep and incorrect underlying assumption of many people about economics and about wealth, that ultimately, if you're getting richer, it's at my expense. Yeah. And that the only way to fix it is to bring you down a peg, and that'll bring me up. And um, that's not the case. As and, Matt Damon uh, so eloquently puts it, what's in it for the hippo? Right. right. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the 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 view of the world in the film that uh, everything is selfish and a matter of self interest, and there's no harmony in society. There's no harmony of interest, as in fact, free markets produce with the famous invisible hand. And uh, and quite fortunately, we we live in a real world uh, where. Uh, while, alas, we do not have floating space stations that have uh, women in bathing, bathing suits that break into uncontrollable bouts of French periodically, uh, we, we do have one where if you're merely buying shoes, you're helping somebody in another country. Uh, because in, unless it's a slave labor situation, which, again, is atrocious, you're, you're literally benefiting them because they're getting paid more than if that hadn't happened. And uh, uh, we're able to uh, live in a world where you getting rich is not at the expense of somebody else. And so we can, we can all breathe a little bit. Oh, and I'll point out again that as the economy gets better, we're not going to overpopulate the planet and live in a giant, sprawling Los Angeles. Uh, yep. So we're, we're okay on that end, too. Yeah. Yep. And, and well, and, and again, as we've said, one of the most clear demographic facts of the last 200 years is that economic growth and industrialization lead to smaller family size uh, and, and slow the rate of growth in population. It's just everywhere fact. 
Great. Well, I, I think I've got my, my main points that I wanted to get in. Are there any other things that you guys would like to get in? I'll, if you want, you can just let loose on anything else that irritated you about the film, well, we even have, if it's not edifying. We anything. have not talked about the atrocious performance of Jodie Foster. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember reading reviews of this film, which talked about how bad she was. I said, surely she can't. She's a fine, extraordinary actress. I said, surely she can't be as bad as they said, but she is. And they made it, her uh, They made her ugly, too. And where I'm they, sorry, yeah, my Where heart. that performance came from, how, what she thought, what she was channeling to I, produce I, such a horrible performance oh. is extraordinary. It could have been the blonde helmet she was wearing. I, that I might have affected her. Uh, and I kept thinking Hillary Clinton the whole time, and that made it you worse. Know, I did too. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I, I, I wonder if they intended that. I don't know. Uh, there is uh, a I, strange I, line in the film when she says uh, to the uh, president, I'm sure you have a fundraiser to attend, which seemed like a nice dig at Obama, yeah. but I can't believe they intended that. I, uh, I expected Jodie Foster at any point during the film to cackle and drink a snifter of orphan tears. Right. Uh, so or, so or heavy-handed have a, have a was that character. Dalmatians running around somewhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, I'm I'm with you all. I think we're all in agreement that uh, um, you should only watch this film if you're getting it off of some sort of pirated device due to the the abysmal economics in it, which are only slightly worse than the science in it. Uh, and apparently the acting in it. So we'll we'll give this uh, half a star. Don't forget the script. <laughs> so we'll give this. I, I'd say you know what of, of the films we've watched so far, I would say this is probably the one uh, least in value. Uh, I, I would uh, watch Wally again before I watch this. <laughs> other than serving as a foil for our own personal edification, uh, this is probably the the worst quality film we've watched. That's fair enough. I will. I'll go along with you on that. Uh, I think. Gentlemen, by having spoken to you, you have restored the brain cells that I lost from having watched Elysium, for which I thank you. My, my vocabulary and economic sense has returned to me. Thank you, and I look forward to our next broadcast. So do I. Yeah, take care, guys. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.